Hello and welcome to this special Property Week podcast. My name is Tim Clark and I am the legal and professional editor at Property Week. This is the third in a series of free podcasts looking at different aspects of the journey to net zero. As part of our current campaign, Get Set for Net Zero. We're grateful for the support of our partners in promoting this campaign. Founding partner, Mish Kondirea, lead partners, Hollis and Deepkey, knowledge partner, the UK Green Building Council and supporting partner, Octopus Real Estate. Today's topic is the energy revolution and its influence on the property sector. As the rising numbers of electric cars on our roads demonstrate, we are in the middle of a shift away from fossil fuels burned in millions of engines and boilers around the country to a future where there is much more likely to use electricity from renewable sources. And indeed, as solar panels and batteries proliferate, more and more property owners are likely to start exporting energy to the grid. All good from a carbon perspective, But is the commercial real estate sector really going to avoid the pitfalls and, importantly, get a return on investment? Here to discuss this with me today is Scott Murray, Head of MEP Projects at Hollis, and Tom Wigg, Senior Advisor, Advancing Net Zero at the UK Green Building Council. Welcome to the podcast, guys. Hi there. Thanks for having us along. Lovely to be here. So let's dive straight in. Fossil fuels, bad. We all know that. We need to transition away from gas to kind of more of a different way of heating our homes, let's face it. And to reach net zero, we're looking at all the different options. On the first podcast, we briefly dived into this and how it feels that at the moment, we're almost in this kind of purgatory or limbo when it comes to what the future answer is to how we're going to heat our homes. Is it district heating? Is it hydrogen through the what are now the gas pipes? Is it ground source heat pumps or air source heat pumps or solar panels? And as we were saying just on the intro, can homeowners now become tiny mini electricity producers on their own? If you don't mind me asking, Scott, from your perspective, where do you think we are and where do you think we're going to be going? I think we're certainly in a lot better place than when I started in the industry about 20 years ago. I came in around about the time that one of the building regulations had a fairly fundamental change moving forward on energy efficiency. And it was the first step really towards pushing the industry in a much better direction. But yet at the same time, it was a relatively blunt instrument and relatively simplistic in terms of how it was trying to push people forward. It didn't really have the grander ambitions and certainly didn't have the guise of legislation and will of the investment market as it does now. So I think everyone realises that we're in this climate emergency and there's a lot more people behind it. So there's a lot more traction now. So we're certainly in a lot better place than where we were, but still a long way to go. Indeed. And Tom, Obviously, we understand why this switch is important. I think even the least climate change educated person now gets that there is a climate emergency. But what are the important trends that are influencing the renewable energy supply at the moment? Well, I think everyone knows that fossil fuels are bad. They produce a lot of greenhouse gas emissions and that's exacerbating the built environment and other sectors' contribution to climate change. But there's been a substantial change in the energy system in the UK over the last decade or so that's fundamentally changed the way that we need to be servicing buildings. So decarbonising the electricity system in the UK is the cornerstone of us achieving our net zero ambition as a UK economy. And since 2012, I think we've decarbonised the carbon intensity of electricity by about 75%. So where previously electricity that was used in buildings was far higher carbon than using gas, now using electricity is a much lower carbon solution. Now, if you start using that electricity in a really efficient heating system, like a heat pump, you can very, very rapidly decarbonise the energy used for heat. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because to a certain extent, I think that we're not quite aware of the progress that has been made. And obviously there is more that needs to be done. But when it comes to kind of the next generation of energy efficiency and how to 
to source heating. We were talking just briefly before we came on air about, you know, district heat pumps. Is that one of the next steps and next solutions you think that we can see coming forward? Uh, Well, district heating is a slightly controversial topic. I think historically there's been a lot of financial and political capital invested in district heating networks and district heating infrastructure across the UK. So you can see many of the major cities in the UK have policies that oblige anyone bringing a project forwards in those areas to connect to a local district heating network. And historically that made sense from a carbon perspective. There were combined heat and power engines, effectively big diesel generators that could generate heat and electricity. That was relatively lower carbon than burning gas and taking electricity from the grid. But because of the massive progress that's been made decarbonizing the grid in the UK, now those systems are relatively higher carbon. And it takes a lot of effort to transition those networks away from these relatively now higher carbon sources to low carbon sources like electric heat pumps. Whereas if you are just installing a local heating system in an individual building, you can install a heat pump and very rapidly reduce the overall carbon intensity of that building. So I think district heating has a role to play in future. I mean, the CCC and most other future scenarios models show that in certain areas, district heating has a role to play. But I think one of the big problems is if you're trying to transmit heat over a long distance, you're naturally having to overcome the heat losses to the ground and the embodied carbon of that infrastructure relative to a local heating system. So in many cases, installing a district heating network in a new area doesn't stack up from a carbon or a cost point of view. Should we put that one on hold then for a little while? We'll come back to that one when there's maybe a few more positive projects that have been around because it's an interesting one to explore but I guess it's one of those things that if it is a new technology or a new idea you kind of need to see the benefit and cost scenario coming forward don't you? It depends on where you are in the world as well you know we know from working in the kind of built environment and working on designs we're used to five ten years ago working to the Danish standards when we're looking at district heating networks so they were kind of one of the forefront leaders in terms of using district heating systems so you're dealing with people living in relatively colder climates so the likes of Denmark, Finland, Norway have all got the ability to potentially use a district heating system in a slightly better way than might be practical in a slightly warmer climate than the UK and into Europe and it depends on where you're getting the source of heat from. You know, if you're taking it from a kind of waste to heat incineration plant and whether that's serving domestic residential or serving the local industrial area, there's still a place for it. It's just, like you say, it's horses for courses. Horses for courses, exactly. So I think if you've got a local source of waste heat, like a data centre or an electrical substation or an underground station that is pumping out lots of low-grade heat, if you strap a heat pump to that, you can upgrade that waste heat to usable district heating temperatures at a much higher efficiency than trying to take that heat just out of the ambient air. But that's not the case for many heat network installations where actually they are still, as I said, having to overcome those losses in the network. And those losses get passed on as costs because the energy cost and the heat cost from those networks is relatively higher than local systems in a lot of situations. So as Scott says, horses for courses on those systems. If we look at the benefits of using, say, renewable energy as a whole, if you don't mind me asking, Scott, what kind of benefits can commercial clients and developers and people in the real estate sector get from the switch? And like, from the perspective of the commercial property sector, what are the advantages? From a commercial perspective, I think we're probably looking more at the switch from gas to electricity than purely just the renewable component of that. So as Tom was mentioning, we're obviously looking to shift away from a fossil-based fuel like gas towards an electrical grid network connection and going down the air source heat pump route. So we're in a place where the building itself 
we're driving down the energy and the efficiency of the building to minimise the amount of energy you possibly need to use. And then we get to, say, the lowest component possible. And then we're looking at potentially using either renewables on site where possible. But if you look at the inside of a building network on a dense London site where you don't have a lot of roof space or don't have the ability to connect to ground or put in wind turbines, which is fairly self-evident, you then need to start to look at other partners. And then that's when you're starting to look to the grid to look at funding the grid networks and moving into a power purchase agreement, so a PPA sleeving, as it were. So you're looking to fund renewables inside the network. So it's looking at developers being part of the overall solution of decarbonising the grid, which is what Tom was getting to earlier. That's really interesting, isn't it? And also, I mean, the Chancellor briefly touched on that in the autumn statement, not necessarily in exactly this way, but they were paying more attention to especially the electricity grid and the network and the different ways the connections are going to be brought on. It feels like it's about time that this kind of happened, isn't it, really? Oh, massively, yeah. I mean, again, sounded like I've been in the industry for way longer than I have, but 20 years ago, we were talking about improving the energy efficiency of building and we were getting to a point where people were saying, let's put some PVs on the buildings, let's put wind turbines on the buildings in the middle of London. It was almost nonsensical for some of the solutions. There just wasn't the available roofscape. You didn't have the right type of environment and you wouldn't necessarily want to see a proliferation of wind turbines across a lot of roofs in the middle of London. So, you know, we got to the point, we were lobbying local planning and saying, you know, it's not just the developer and it's not just in the built environment are the people that can help decarbonise the UK carbon emissions. It's got to be done at a more central level. And we were lobbying for a while back then to say that actually you're better investing more money and more effort and time and legislation on the grid rather than necessarily purely just at the building form. Because if you can sort the grid out, then it will just transcend down through to the built environment and you'll be in a better place. And I remember those concerns because it was the Strata building down in Elephant Castle that had the wind turbines and it did look a bit like Blade Runner, but we can never work out if they're actually working. Last I heard. They've been switched off because oh, of the vibration. But again, it's one of those things that that's actually never going to be a suitable solution for inner city energy generation. It was a nice showy bit of kit, but it actually didn't do anything to contribute to reducing the carbon intensity of the building in reality because it was so annoying to the people that were in the buildings. And we've got so much low-hanging fruit when it comes to decarbonising buildings and decarbonising the energy system that actually these really costly, really obtrusive inner city solutions are not the way that we should be going. Scott was talking about the Scandinavian nations investing heavily in decarbonising heat through district heating. Mm. And as you mentioned, that might be suitable in some areas in the UK. But actually, we've made so much progress decarbonising the grid in the UK. We have so much propensity for renewable energy, proliferous renewable energy, that if we invest in transitioning our heating systems to electric heating systems, we can then capitalise and leverage on that decarbonising electricity to decarbonise heat in the UK. And the same is true of transport. So I think it's probably a useful point to talk about some of the challenges that we've got in decarbonising the electricity system and why buildings need to have so much more of an active role in supporting that decarbonisation. Because we're going from a system where you've got these big fossil fuel centralised generators in the middle of the country that are generating energy on demand and flowing out along the transmission networks to the distribution networks where it can be used by consumers. And that's historically where we've been. But now as we're transitioning to decarbonise that network, we've got a combination of most of the large scale strategic renewable generation coming on at the extremities of the network, so the north of Scotland and the North Sea, as well as lots of smaller scale micro generation and storage coming on on the distribution networks. And that is just an order of magnitude more complex. 
complex to manage and also more challenging for the grid to handle and be resilient to because of the complexities of those energy flows. And finally, because we're moving away from dispatchable fossil fuel generation that can ramp its generation up and down in response to demand to primarily intermittent renewable generation like wind and solar, the fact is the wind isn't always blowing, the sun isn't always shining when people need energy. We need the demand side to be much more flexible and responsive to the availability of that energy. And that's going to require a wholesale shift in attitudes towards electricity use, where it's not just going to be on tap like it has been historically. We need to think about being flexible, dynamic and responsive to the availability of renewable or low carbon energy. Really interesting. There's two things I'd love to pick up on from that. First one was the low hanging fruit. I mean, Are we, as a country and a society and as a sector, making use of all the easy solutions that we could do right now? Or are there some things that maybe people like developers could think about and utilise a bit more than they are? Well, I think there's sort of two elements. There's the real estate or built environment side, and then there's the energy system side. Right. There are some good mechanisms in place to help drive the deployment of renewables at a strategic grid scale. So the government's got its contracts for difference mechanism, which guarantees a price for the energy from large-scale renewable generators. And that's been really effective at driving down the cost of renewables. So back in 2014, 2015, when the first contracts for difference was run, offshore wind was at about £120 a megawatt hour. It's now down around about £55 a megawatt hour, so close to being delivered subsidy free. The problem is, though, that the last round of contracts for difference that was in September of this year has received zero bids for new offshore wind. So that seems to be stagnating a little bit. However, where I think there's a real opportunity, and this is where the built environment has more of an influence and an opportunity, is about the plethora of smaller scale decentralised renewable projects that are coming forward. So small scale solar, small scale wind, that can be meaningfully driven and accelerated by the way in which the built environment engages in the energy markets and procures its energy. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I think it was your notes that you kindly provided me is that between 50 and 70 gigawatt power is needed to run the UK. It's equivalent to the solar in one in three or one in five rooftops. Yeah, so that 50 to 70 gigawatts is actually just the rooftop solar that's needed. So the National Grid produces its future energy scenarios report every year that looks at potential future grid electricity system scenarios for delivering net zero in the UK and how that energy energy system needs to interact with other sectors in order to deliver decarbonisation across the whole UK. So that 30 to 50 gigawatts is just rooftop solar on domestic buildings. And yeah, that works out a moderate sized array on between one in every three and one in every five homes. So the scale of that problem is clear. And that's why we need real like national scale incentives to get PV on roofs as quickly and as deeply as possible. And I think one of the big areas that's kind of now being thought about is the logistics parks of the UK asset owners are re-looking at their own portfolios and thinking we can put solar on that and we can make it work depending on the structure and design but going back into you know some of the things that we were looking to talk about today at what point in the design process should energy decisions be made well in some respects before the design process in reality we're doing a lot of work with funders and investors at the moment looking at their portfolios so rather than looking at an individual building and thinking about the design straight off looking at the overall portfolio of body of existing buildings and potential pipeline buildings and starting to create a bit of a red, amber, green, a kind of priority order list in terms of the buildings that should be attacked first. So there'll be a lot of buildings with low-hanging fruit that we can do some relatively simple upgrades to. So we can start to look at whether that's lighting or simple systems that need upgraded inside the building or to the buildings that may then start to need either a wider full-scale refurbishment Mm. or potentially buildings that might be coming end of life. In actual fact, you may be better off 
looking to take the building down and start again. Obviously, there's a bigger conversation around about embodied carbon at the moment. So clearly, there's a lot more focus on trying to keep the buildings in their existing form and extend or transform those buildings into other uses. So we've done a lot of work on office conversion to student residential or residential because those buildings are relatively prime for that type of change of use. But clearly, there's a lot of work to do in terms of driving down the energy. Well, what's interesting there is that, as you were saying earlier, that at the moment, there has been, up until now, a small and incremental approach to improving the carbon impact of buildings, and you're not convinced that that's helped. Has adding in the Part L into building standards, that was in the 2010s, has that helped? And where are we now? And what kind of action should be taken? I think, like you say, we're definitely pushing things further and we're starting to ramp up our action in terms of tackling the climate change emergency. There's been a lot more drive around the conversation of net zero carbon. People understand that and people can start to resonate with that conversation. Equally at the same time, PAR-L is a building regulations tool that then is applied through the energy performance certification modelling and assessment. But EPC in its current form is legislated potentially to move to EPCC as a grade by 27 and EPCB by 2030. That is helping that is giving a bare minimum requirement. But at the same time, that is a compliant-led solution. Mm. EPCB is not net zero carbon. Yeah, do you think there's a bit of misunderstanding there? Did you feel that from your clients and the people you worked with? I do, and I think there's still a degree of naivety. There's people trying to grasp with a subject they've never had to deal with mm. in the past. Until five, ten years ago, I was still reading some planning guidance and statements and people talking about being sustainable and saying they're doing BREAM. Tom and I know very well that BREAM is only one very small component of how sustainable a building is or a built environment is. It focuses to a certain degree on energy and carbon, but doesn't really have as big a focus. There's been a much wider conversation around about energy and carbon emissions than there has been in the past. So I think as we start to see the shift from bare minimum compliance, which is in place, you'll have some clients who wouldn't have done anything now having to do something as a bare minimum, but you'll have other clients, funders, long-term investors, who will be looking at their net zero pathway and actually a lot further ahead. So it's almost going away from compliance to a certain degree. And it's people realizing there's a real challenge on our hands and we really need to attack it. And because we now have funders and investors fully invested in that conversation, it's coming from the top down rather than the government necessarily hitting people with compliance and legislation. It's the carrot and the stick. Part L has been a really effective tool at setting minimum standards and driving the performance of new buildings and major refurbishments since it was introduced. And hopefully the future homes standard and the future building standard that will be coming in in 2025 will be another step change along that journey, whether or not the ambition will be set high enough to actually deliver true net zero ready homes and buildings that won't need to be retrofitted by 2050 is still TBC really. I think though the other thing that we're really missing from this conversation is all the existing buildings that are not going through a major refurbishment but still need some sort of incentive to improve their energy efficiency Mm. and UK Green Building Council has recently come out with a report looking at whether a stamp duty land tax incentive for buyers might be an effective way to create the funding to deliver retrofit and refurbishment of existing homes at the point of sale or soon after the point of sale. So that would give you a relaxation or a rebate on your stamp duty land tax if you invest in energy efficiency measures either pre-sale or post-sale it was one of that very very popular consultation on the mppf whose response from the government we still haven't yet 
it's got. Yeah, I think we're expecting a much more watered down version of the recommendation in the eventual MPPF. But I think that as a solution, it's a bit of a win-win because it provides that funding for the essential retrofit of the existing domestic stock. But that in itself then brings broader social benefits because you improve the energy efficiency of the homes, reduce energy bills, improve comfort, improve health and well-being. So anything relating to energy efficiency and energy costs these days needs to be seen in the context not just of reducing carbon and mitigating the contributions to climate change, but also the massive societal benefits that that can bring, bringing people out of fuel poverty, improving health and well-being, improving comfort and generally improving quality of life, which is so critical. It's interesting, isn't it? I had the pleasure to chat to your colleague, Anna, for the first in this series of three. And one of the areas we were talking about after the podcast was the idea that a lot of the measures so far, and it touches on what you were saying, Scott, is it's almost like we're doing something that's going to be negative for the environment, but we're going to make it less bad as possible. Realistically, you want to try and turn that whole premise on its head and say, we're doing this and it's going to benefit everyone. It's a very hard thing to achieve, but it is possible. Yeah, I mean, just touching back a little bit on what Tom was saying in terms of cultures as well, just a second ago, since I think it's 2015, if I get my stats right, there was the increase in smart meters in the homes has gone from negligible zero up to 55% of people now have smart meters in their home. So culturally, people start to understand that we're in a cost of living crisis where people have a much keener eye on their finances and the energy consumption in the home. So, you know, what you want that to do is then translate into action you know, in the workplace as well. People understanding that dialing up the workplace to 23, 24 degrees is maybe not the best thing because they themselves back home have dialed things down as well and they understand the ramifications. So maybe being a bit more simplistic about it, but if you could save some money on energy, maybe there might be more money to be able to afford kind of cost of living increases for staff. So, you know, if you start to get those two things in balance, people might understand the real reasons behind driving down energy rather than necessarily just from a carbon perspective. I think Scott mentioning smart meters is a good point to bring up one of the key reasons smart meters have been introduced is about the higher resolution of the tracking of energy consumption. Yeah. And a lot of people think it's purely there. So you have a much more direct understanding of your energy use, but actually yeah, transitioning away from kind of giving your monthly meter readings to the ability to record energy consumption at a minimum of a half hourly resolution is absolutely critical for those reasons that I was mentioning earlier. As we move away from a grid that can very easily meet the fluctuations in demand on the system by ramping up or ramping down these coal and gas-fired generators, as we move from that to a grid that's dominated by wind and solar, it's not going to have that propensity to be able to meet demand. So we're going to need the demand side to become much more flexible. And in order to do that, we need an understanding or a higher resolution view of how energy is being consumed. But again, this isn't just something that needs to be done from a carbon perspective and a grid resilience perspective. It's actually renewables are really cheap. Once you've built a wind turbine, the electricity that that turbine is generating is basically free, whereas gas is very expensive. And over the last couple of years has gone up by five or 600%. It's disproportionately expensive now and very, very subject to the geopolitical landscape. So if you can maximize the proportion of your electricity that is coming from these cheap renewable sources, that should reflect in your energy bills and actually yeah, reduce the cost that you're paying month on month. And actually I've got a heat pump at home. I've recently moved on to the Octopus Cozy Tariff, which is one that offers you 
50% lower cost electricity between four and seven in the morning and one and four in the afternoon, but 50% higher cost electricity between four in the afternoon and 7pm. I've actually had to do very little to leverage the benefits of that. I just make sure that my heat pump doesn't do any of my hot water or any of my heating during that evening increase. And I hope that in the next couple of months, it's going to save me a decent amount on my energy bills without any compromise of comfort. So this is where you get real tangible personal benefits from this transition that needs to happen at the same time as supporting the resilience of the grid and minimising the operational carbon from your buildings. And do you think the message that you were just saying there about, you know, your own home and the way you've heated your home more efficiently can be scaled up to the commercial sector? Is it more just a sense of taking a second look at your estate and what you have and putting in some kind of almost common sense approaches? Yeah, I mean, so UKGBC published in August this year some guidance on renewable energy procurement. And this was focused on how do commercial buildings engage in the energy market in a way that can drive and accelerate the decarbonisation of the electricity system whilst minimising their own operational carbon. And that guidance identified three principles for engaging in the energy markets and for procuring high quality renewable electricity, some of which I've already touched on. The first is that the electricity that you're procuring should be renewable as far as possible. So that means not just buying your bog standard green tariff, which only needs to be matched with renewable certificates. So actually your supplier can have whatever power they want. As long as they buy these cheap renewable certificates, they can sell it to you as 100% renewable. So actually maximizing the proportion of your power that's coming from renewable generators. And that means a direct contractual relationship with one of those small-scale renewable generators I mentioned. The second principle is additionality. So the term additionality is used a lot in the sustainability sphere, but in the context of the energy system, if you're taking a share of the renewable energy that's already available, you're actually not causing any net change in emissions at a system level. So additionality is the principle that your procurement should be driving and stimulating the construction of new renewable energy generating capacity and also the supporting infrastructure that's needed in the grid like energy storage. And then the third principle is one I've already banged on about quite a lot. It's about time matching. So going away from this annual matching of supply and demand to a much more granular approach where you're looking at your consumption at a half hourly level and matching supply or demand with renewable supply at that much more granular or higher resolution. The only example I ever remember is that halftime, if England are in a World Cup final, is the peak (laughs) moment because everyone puts the kettle on. And apparently the energy system just surged for like about four minutes. It's a really good example of what do you think is meeting all that additional demand? It's going to be coal and gas. And that's really, really high carbon. And this is why if we can move our behaviours to start capitalising on the low carbon, cheap renewable electricity and avoid burning gas and coal as much as possible, it's going to be very beneficial from a national carbon perspective. And going back to buildings. Scott, Hollis, obviously they help clients analyse their options when it comes to the design cycle. And I think one of the key things that you've said is you don't want people to leave it too late in the detailed design stage to make these decisions. What advice do you give from the start. Absolutely. And like I say, we work heavily with our ESG team who will analyse whether it be a portfolio or a large scale of buildings with our clients. And we look at a net zero pathway, like I said, before the outset. And that could be before architect teams or even MEP design teams are involved in the project. So you're really getting a sense of where you need to go. We do a lot of work up front in terms of budgeting and looking at how we and how the client would need to kind of take the building forward. So you've already got yourself going off in the right direction. Rather than saying, I've got a budget of X, I need to improve this asset, the stock isn't good, the rents are down, I need to do something, I've got to do a lot of work to it. In the past, that might have been more of a visual, aesthetic, a functional 
performance in terms of where the budget went. If we can get those decisions made earlier and we can look at what it's going to cost us from an energy and a carbon perspective in terms of improving that building stock, we can make a much more informed decision. And it may be that the swing of balance goes more towards an energy side or a carbon side of the equation rather than necessarily a visual or an aesthetic side of the equation. So early engagement before we launch too far into a project is absolutely key. Tom was talking earlier about retrofit and the existing building stock a lot of the buildings we're involved in that are actually existing buildings and a lot of the clients we deal with we've either helped buy and sell those buildings or we're helping with a new leasing through the building life cycle so we're heavily involved in terms of how and what we do with existing buildings we're dealing a lot with clients who are coming in and saying right i need to improve this building and take it up to an epc b or c now we start to factor that into the building life cycle are we at a point where the systems are at end of life or are they coming towards end of life because if we start to put something in the building now the likelihood is going to be there for the next 5 10 15 plus years and if we're going to be getting towards EPCB or Cs in the not too distant future, then what the clients don't want to be doing is doing a major retrofit of a building and then finding they'll have to come back in five, 10 years to have to try and retrofit something else into existing systems that don't match. So we need to be having that conversation earlier and they might as well start now or better off starting now, planning for the future rather than leaving it until we get closer and closer to these EPC changes. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? The 2030 deadline does feel like a way of making sure change does actually occur because if you didn't have that deadline then people are happy to sit on things and maybe postpone decisions to another day but it's going to force people's hands to a certain extent especially if their building stock is quite low grade absolutely and like i say that is still a bare minimum requirement that will be the more minimum compliance in terms of the building stock that's out there you'll have other clients who'll be pushing the boundaries a lot further because they know they need to so there will be a middle ground with what people do on their buildings but like i say having that conversation a lot earlier allows people to be able to budget and put money in the right direction rather than necessarily think they don't have to spend a lot of money on some upgrades and then decide to spend the money on an extension to a building or a visual or a functional performance change to the buildings. And do you think, if you put yourself in the role of a developer, do you think there's still a bit of confusion over kind of what developers should do? So you earlier you mentioned, you know, you can get a BRIAM assessment, but that doesn't necessarily mean you've covered everything. And, you know, you have the likes of neighbours, which can make it harder to basically make inflated claims because they're based on real hard data. Is the developer world crying out for kind of a bit more clarity on how it should approach this challenge? Yeah, I'm happy to dive in there. So yeah, I've probably got to plug the UK Net Zero Carbon Building Standard there. So that's, Please do. Yeah. <laughs> that's an initiative that is a collaboration between most of the major professional institutions and industry bodies in the UK built environment, including the UK Green Building Council. I'm fortunate enough to represent the UK GBC on the technical steering group for that project. The overarching ambition is to try try and bring together all of the brilliant work that's been done across the built environment industry in the last five or so years, defining what a net zero building looks like and how to deliver one into a single kind of cohesive, really robust process for verifying a building as net zero carbon. Alongside that is the development of a suite of science-based performance limits for both operational energy and embodied carbon. And I think that's one of the key changes that industry needs to get its head around is that actually it's no longer enough to just do what you can at the asset level. We've got a finite quantum of carbon that we can emit into the atmosphere between now and 2050, and we have a finite amount of renewable energy that's going to be available in future. And each individual building can't take more than its fair share of that. So one of the main tasks that the Net Zero Building Standard is currently progressing is downscaling our national carbon budget and our national renewable energy budget down to asset level 
targets and limits at a square meter basis so that buildings of every sector will understand what their fair share of that budget is. And ultimately, we will say you cannot be net zero if you're exceeding that target or that limit. That's quite fascinating, isn't it? Scott, I didn't know if you had anything to jump in on that point. I think, as I'd said earlier, it's about the early engagement and it's about starting the process now. And as Tom said, you know, it's starting to look at the kind of science-based targets, but setting those targets, announcing those targets, and then reporting on those targets. You know, we deal with a lot of clients at the investor funder level who do take this extremely seriously. They've all set out their net zero pathway. They all have really well explained CSRs that complement each other. And it's about helping transcend that through the rest of the industry as well. So there are people who are at the forefront of this. Who are the people that you could look up to that are at the forefront? So, I mean, I could say the kind of investor funder level, but equally all the way down through developers. So legal in general are pushing the boundary quite far at the moment. I did quite a lot of work with Hammerson on a lot of their net positive design and buildings in the past five or so years. Lansec themselves is a big developer pushing the boundaries in terms of where they want buildings to go in the future and looking to harness a lot of the technology and, and looking to bring together, rather than necessarily just their own scope emissions, so rather than just looking at the scope one and two yeah. emissions at a land level, but also looking towards the scope three emissions of their tenants and customers as well. So there's a lot of work being done in the background. And I think what you start to find is that it's easier for maybe a developer or an investor who has a lot more capital to dispose in different areas. They can push themselves to the forefront of being sustainable or driving down energy and carbon. But it's the people who don't have the bandwidth or the experience or the capital to be able to do that. So that's where we need to try and start sharing help across the sector. Like I say, from leading developers through to small customers, small tenants who need a bit of a leg up. It's a really interesting point. I'll come back to that. But I guess when you, you know, you're looking at people on the scale of Landsec, there was a really interesting policy that came out from Westfield and group-wide across Europe, they basically have almost turned their entire sustainability policy on its head and they've looked to go net zero by earlier than 2050, even going to as far as, as you say, net positive, trying to reduce their carbon emissions beyond net zero. And it was, it was a massive expansion of PV solar, looking at their entire real estate and even their development plan is now reorientated into sustainability at its core. And I guess that's the kind of action that the large developers need to take. And then once that's done, be able to help, as you're saying, the people that don't always have the multi-million pound bank accounts to be able to put all this into place in the future. Absolutely. And Legal in general have just issued their updated report in terms of their net zero pathway and what they're doing and talking about helping customers down at the industrial level. So effectively, Legal in general scope three emissions, but effectively a tenant or a customer's scope one and two emissions. So it's been able to help them put things into practice and help them develop and upgrade buildings that might be sat in the middle of a long leasehold. And maybe they don't have the opportunity or capital to be able to spend on that. But the freeholder, the landlord themselves are able to help contribute. I think that's where the increased clarity on scope three emissions and better commitment to tracking and reporting scope three emissions has been really important because you're no longer kind of ring fencing your own emissions. As soon as you start talking about scope three, everyone up and down your value chain is part of your own emissions accounting. So there is an incentive not just to focus on your own operations, but actually those beyond the scope of your kind of explicit assets. And that 
incentivizes collaboration in some instances, but I still think there's quite a long way to go. A point I was going to make was that I think we, again, need to reframe the conversation and stop seeing sustainability as a cost. It is a cost, but also sustainability has value and increasingly so to a point where actually if you don't do this now, you risk some of your assets being stranded in future. And you think about the cost of not doing this rather than the cost of doing it in future. Well, it's timely because apparently this week, or we're recording this in December, obviously it's going out live in January, but basically very recently, the largest investment sovereign wealth fund in the world, I think it's Norges Bank Investment Management, warned against scrimping on sustainability because in the long run, it will cost you more. And I guess that's the message that's starting to come across. Yeah, if you invest in sustainable solutions and sustainable design, those assets can realise a premium over comparable buildings. But obviously there's then a payback. You have to have that upfront capital to be able to do it. And I think that's where it's well outside of my wheelhouse to understand the financial mechanisms that can help drive more of that investment in sustainability early, which will realise long-term value. Maybe Scott's got a perspective on that. No, I think to try and simplify it more so, you have large pension funds who see the value of climate change action because they are long-term investors. So they're looking much further into the future. And if they're on board and they realize there's a need to do this, then clearly we all have to start to see that because they're looking after our pension for the next 5, 10, 15, 20, 30, 5, 50, 100 years and beyond. They're the ones that are trying a future look down the line. They realize that if we don't act on this now, the climate, as the science is showing us, could spiral out of control. And I think that's it. I think we've got the ability to tackle it. We've got the ability to grasp it and get a hold of it. But we need action now and we need to move on with it. Mm. And just to wrap up, actually, because we're running out of time, but what are the most important things that property firms can do now to prepare for the future? Like I say, I think starting to engage, start to have the conversation now, start Mm. to look at setting targets and do it at pace. You need traction. You need to get involved. If you announce that externally... People will understand what you're going to do and then you're then held to account on that and then start to report on that. So it's about starting to take action, really. Yeah, echo everything Scott said. And I think continuing to focus on decarbonizing at an asset level is just so important through design, through operation, through delivery. I've spoken a lot about the importance of supporting the decarbonization of the electricity system today. It really is the cornerstone of us meeting our national net zero target. And the built environment has an increasingly important role to play. So I'd implore built environment stakeholders to understand what that role is, why our buildings important in supporting a resilient and decarbonized electricity system, and then go and engage in the energy markets in a way that helps to accelerate that transition that is already happening but potentially not as fast as it needs to. Brilliant. Well, look, guys, thank you so much for taking time to chat this afternoon. It's really appreciated. That is all we have time for, sadly, for this one. I have a feeling we could have run and run on that for a while. Well, you never know. There may be more. But for now, this is the last of three of the special podcasts that we've recorded as part of our Get Set for Net Zero campaign. In the first two, we looked at factors determining whether retrofit is better than a new build and the importance of effective collaboration in reaching net zero goals. You can find both of those through the Property Week website. And just to sign off, say thank you very much to Scott and Tom for taking time to chat this afternoon. Thanks very much for having me. Cheers. Goodbye.